Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for June 7th through 13th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, Section 63. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Welcome, scriptures. So good to have them here. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 13 minutes, 48 seconds. Wow, not bad at all, but what would it be daily? 1 minute, 58 seconds. Oh so my less goodness. Than two minutes. <laughs> so if you were to say to somebody something like, hey, give me a minute or two, well, then you could be reading your scriptures. We've got time codes right here, which are silly because it's just the episode today. But we do have a reminder that there are links in the description below the video. If you're watching on YouTube, there are links that have to do with the show, but there's also a PDF that you can download of all the slides and quotes that we're going to show today. So if you're interested in that, feel free to check that out. If you're looking at YouTube on a web browser, you might have to click read more in order to see the links for the PDF. And also as another reminder, the show has two different formats. If you're watching on YouTube, you're seeing the video format, but there's also an audio only format that is available wherever you get audio podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, etc. I just wanted to make sure that you were aware that both versions are out there. Fantastic. And with that, Let's get into the section. So we're looking at Doctrine and Covenants, section 63. And from the Institute Manual, we get this summary. When the Prophet Joseph Smith and other church leaders returned to Ohio from Missouri on August 27, 1831, they announced to the church members there that the Lord had identified Jackson County, Missouri as the location for the city of Zion. The Prophet recorded, In these infant days of the church, There was a great anxiety to obtain the word of the Lord upon every subject that in any way concerned our salvation. And as the land of Zion was now the most important temporal object in view, I inquired of the Lord for further information upon the gathering of the saints and the purchase of the land and other matters. On August 30th, in answer to his inquiry, Joseph Smith received the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 63. The Other matters the prophet inquired about may have included his concern for several church members in Ohio who had committed serious sins and fallen away while he and other leading elders had been in Missouri. The revelation helped clarify that only those who were faithful followers of Jesus Christ were to go and help establish Zion in Missouri. And that leads in perfectly to verse 1, in which you get a really interesting introduction The Lord tells his listeners to open your hearts and listen. But who is he talking to? He says, you that call yourselves the people of the Lord. Now, that's an interesting tone to set. And it's unique phrasing that we haven't found in any other revelation. You that call yourselves the people of the Lord. You can hear in that this idea that you may say that you're following me. You may say that you're a member of my church, but you're not necessarily acting like it and that there's a difference. So he goes on in verse five, behold, I, the Lord utter my voice 
and it shall be obeyed. Wherefore, verily I say, let the wicked take heed, and let the rebellious fear and tremble, and let the unbelieving hold their lips. For the day of wrath shall come upon them as a whirlwind, and all flesh shall know that I am God. And he that seeketh signs shall see signs, but not unto salvation. Verily I say unto you, there are those among you who seek signs, and there have been such even from the beginning. But behold, faith cometh not by signs, but signs follow those that believe. Yea, signs come by faith, not by the will of men, nor as they please, but by the will of God. That's something that seems to have plagued followers of the Lord for all time, really. There have been sign seekers seemingly in every generation. But why are there sign seekers? Well, what are some of the problems that Joseph is seeing as he's returned to Kirtland? From the Institute Manual, we get this summary. During the summer and autumn of 1831, some church members lost faith in the restored gospel and spoke out publicly against the prophet Joseph Smith. Two particularly vocal critics apostatized and began to publish anti-Mormon material in newspapers beginning in September and October of 1831. One of the critics was Ezra Booth, a former Methodist preacher who had joined the church in early 1831 after reading the Book of Mormon, meeting with Joseph Smith, and witnessing the prophet heal Alice Elsa Johnson's crippled arm. After his baptism, Ezra Booth was ordained a high priest and called to serve a mission to Missouri. He expected to convert many by displaying great signs and performing miracles. However, after preaching for a short time without seeing the results he anticipated, Booth turned away and became an apostate. There's a note here from the seminary manual that points out that the prophet Joseph Smith made the following observation about Ezra Booth. When he actually learned that faith, humility, patience, and tribulation go before blessing, and that God brings low before he exalts, that instead of the Savior's granting him power to smite men and make them believe, then he was disappointed. The Institute Manual goes on. The other critic was Simon's Ryder, who was introduced to the church by Ezra Booth. Ryder traveled to Kirtland, Ohio, to investigate the church, and while he was there, he heard a church member predict an earthquake in China. A few weeks later, in April 1831, Simons read a newspaper account of a destructive earthquake in Peking, China, and believed that he had witnessed a miraculous prophecy. He was baptized soon thereafter, but just a few months later, he came out in open opposition to the church. Simons Ryder... That's an interesting name. How do you spell that? Now, it's interesting that you should bring that up, Jay, because <laughs> that was one of Simon's writer's early criticisms, is that he received a revelation from Joseph Smith that had misspelled his name. Mm. And I can tell you very honestly that if misspelling one's name was grounds for leaving the church, I would have <laughs> left a long time ago. Some of you may have noticed that my name, John, is short for Jonathan, so my short name is spelled without an H in the less popular form, J-O-N, and it is frequently misspelled. Well, and everybody seems to forget the M in Fulmer for me, so I'm constantly <laughs> being called true. Brother Fuller, which is right. a friend of mine, and I don't mind being called Brother Fuller, but to get it right, it would be Fulmer. But yes, interesting. Please respect our M. <laughs> yeah. 
Moving on from the Institute Manual, then Elder Dallin H. Oaks from an article in June 2001 Enzyme called Miracles points out, quote, in bearing testimonies and in our public addresses, we rarely mention our most miraculous experiences and we rarely rely on signs that the gospel is true. We usually just affirm our testimony of the truthfulness of the restored gospel and give few details on how we obtained it. Why is this? Signs follow those that believe. Seeking a miracle to convert someone is improper sign-seeking. There are good reasons why we do not seek conversions by exhibiting signs. The viewing of signs or miracles is not a secure foundation for conversion. Scriptural history attests that people converted by signs and wonders soon forget them and again become susceptible to the lies and distortions of Satan and his servants. In contrast to the witness of the Spirit, which can be renewed from time to time as needed by a worthy recipient, the viewing of a sign or the experiencing of a miracle is a one-time event that will fade in the memory of its witness and can dim in its impact upon him or her, end quote. You know, we talked a lot about sign-seeking in last year's lessons in the Book of Mormon. There are several lessons that had to do with seeking signs. And I think one of the reasons why our Father in Heaven doesn't work that way, doesn't convert through signs, is that when you're given a sign, now you are given knowledge, and you're responsible for that knowledge. And if you don't have faith to back up that knowledge, then you don't have a foundation. As Elder Oaks points out, that witness, that event will fade in your memory, and yet you're still responsible for that knowledge. It's actually quite merciful that signs follow the exhibition of faith. Yes, for sure. In verse 12, it lets us know that there are good reasons for seeking signs. You can seek them for the good of men unto my glory. So it depends on what your intentions are. Right. Is it your own self-gratification or is it for the glory of God? Yeah. So in verses 13 through 16, let's start with verse 13. Nevertheless, I give commandments, and many have turned away from my commandments and have not kept them. Now, let's, as going forward in these verses, let's look for what sins church members committed. In 14, there were among you adulterers and adulteresses, some of whom have turned away from you, and others remain with you that hereafter shall be revealed. Let such beware and repent speedily, lest judgment shall come upon them as a snare, and their folly shall be made manifest, and their works shall follow them in the eyes of the people. And verily I say unto you, as I have said before, he that looketh on a woman to lust after her, or if any shall commit adultery in their hearts, they shall not have the spirit, but shall deny the faith and shall fear. It's an interesting phrase there in verse 14, that some of whom have turned away from you and others remain with you. In other words, some have committed adultery and left the church, but some have committed adultery and are still here and are still claiming membership. Yeah. There's a great quote in the Come Follow Me manual from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. This comes from an April 2010 General Conference where he asks, quote, Why is lust such a deadly sin? Well, in addition to the completely spirit-destroying impact it has upon our souls, 
I think it is a sin because it defiles the highest and holiest relationship God gives us in mortality, the love that a man and a woman have for each other, and the desire that couple has to bring children into a family intended to be forever. End quote. Great point. There is a great article from then-elder Dallin H. Oaks. This comes from the April 2005 General Conference. The talk is called Pornography. In it, he tells us, quote, Pornographic or erotic stories and pictures are worse than filthy or polluted food. The body has defenses to rid itself of unwholesome food. With a few fatal exceptions, bad food will only make you sick, but do no permanent harm. In contrast... A person who feasts upon filthy stories or pornographic or erotic pictures and literature records them in this marvelous retrieval system we call a brain. The brain won't vomit back filth. Once recorded, it will always remain subject to recall, flashing its perverted images across your mind and drawing you away from the wholesome things in life. End quote. That's a really good perspective. Something very important to remember So that was a big struggle for the members of the church at this time, that there was a lot of sexual infidelity going on right now. I guess it's good it only happened back then. (laughs) Yeah, that is not a problem anymore. (laughs) Right. Let's go back to our sin list, starting in verse 17. Wherefore, I the Lord have said that the fearful and the unbelieving and all liars and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie and the whoremonger and the sorcerer shall have their part in that lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. By second death, we're referring to the spiritual death. In verse 18, Verily I say that they shall not have part in the first resurrection. The notion of the first resurrection sometimes confuses people. There is a first and a second resurrection, a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. So when we say here, they shall not have part of the first resurrection, that's the resurrection of those who would inherit the celestial kingdom or the terrestrial kingdom. You can find out more about these if you go to your gospel topic section in your gospel library app and click on gospel principles. It's an old manual gospel principles, but it really does a great job of laying out the basics of our beliefs. And if you look in the section on the resurrection, you'll find more information there. Let's go on to verse 20. Nevertheless, he that endureth in faith and doeth my will, the same shall overcome, and shall receive an inheritance upon the earth when the day of transfiguration shall come. When the earth shall be transfigured, even according to the pattern which was shown unto mine apostles upon the mount, of which account the fullness ye have not yet received. Interesting. Interesting. In the Institute Manual, there is a commentary from President Joseph Fielding Smith from the book Doctrines of Salvation. He says, This earth is passing through four grand degrees or stages. One, the creation, and the condition antedating or existing before the fall. Two, the telestial condition, which has prevailed since the fall of Adam. Three, the terrestrial condition or transfiguration of the earth that will prevail when the Savior comes and ushers in the millennial era. And fourth, the celestial or final state of the earth when it has obtained its exaltation. Good clarification. 
Back to the section, verse 22. And now verily I say unto you that as I said that I would make known my will unto you, behold, I will make it known unto you. Skipping down to verse 24. And now behold, this is the will of the Lord your God concerning his saints, that they should assemble themselves together unto the land of Zion, not in haste, lest there should be confusion, which bringeth pestilence. From the Institute Manual, President Joseph Fielding Smith, this is from his book, Church History and Modern Revelation, explained why the saints were to gather in an orderly fashion under the direction of church leaders. Quote, The early members were warned against creating antagonism among their neighbors, many of whom were extremely bitter towards the members of the church. The Lord said the land could not be obtained by the shedding of blood. Those who had the privilege of assembling there should not go up to Zion in haste, but gradually. The reason for this advice is apparent, for haste would lead to confusion, unsatisfactory conditions, and pestilence. And then also it creates consternation and fear in the hearts of their enemies and arouses greater opposition. Satan desired to destroy them and in his anger endeavored to stir them up to strife and contention as well as the older settlers in Missouri. End quote. Yeah, this is really important that they follow the Lord's instructions for how to become a part of that land. In verses 27 through 31, the Lord gives instructions that his people are to purchase lands in Zion. And there's an interesting warning in there, too. We talked a little bit about the fact that the land should be purchased legally and not fought over by blood. He warns us in verse 31, hey, if you want to do it by blood, your enemies are upon you. Yeah. That's not going to end well for you. And there shall be few to stand and receive an inheritance if you want to do it that way. So do it the way I told you to do. Yeah, great warning. In verse 33... The Lord says, I have sworn in my wrath and decreed wars upon the face of the earth, and the wicked shall slay the wicked, and fear shall come upon every man, and the saints also shall hardly escape. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, am with them, and will come down in heaven from the presence of my Father, and consume the wicked with unquenchable fire. The prophet Joseph Smith, from the teachings of the presidents of the church, Joseph Smith, that manual, recorded what took place during a meeting at his home in September 1839. Quote, I explained concerning the coming of the Son of Man. Also, that it is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer, for all flesh is subject to suffer, and the righteous shall hardly escape. Still, many of the saints will escape, for the just shall live by faith. Yet many of the righteous shall fall a prey to disease, to pestilence, etc., by reason of the weakness of the flesh, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God, so that it is an unhallowed principle to say that such and such have transgressed because they have been preyed upon by disease or death. For all flesh is subject to death, and the Savior has said, Judge not, lest ye be judged. End quote. You know, that's an interesting thing. I want to remind our listeners we're recording this in 2021. So this is during the COVID-19 pandemic. We got an interesting reminder of that this last year. Certainly, there were people who are very righteous and faithful members of the church who contracted the disease and some that perhaps have even passed away from it. As Joseph points out in that quote, to fall by reason of the weakness of the flesh 
you can still be saved in the kingdom of God. Absolutely. It's not necessarily a sign of divine disfavor. Right. Well, let's go on in the section. Verse 38. Wherefore, let my disciples in Kirtland arrange their temporal concerns who dwell upon this farm. This farm. Do we remember what that is? This is Isaac Morley's farm in Kirtland. Verse 39. Let my servant Titus Billings, who has the care thereof, dispose of the land that he may be prepared in the coming spring to take his journey up unto the land of Zion, with those that dwell upon the face thereof, excepting those whom I shall reserve unto myself that shall not go until I shall command them. Now, Titus Billings is Isaac's brother-in-law, Isaac Morley's brother-in-law. And he was given charge of the property while Isaac served a mission in Missouri. He got his call two months previously. What's interesting about this is that Joseph and Emma, as well as Sidney Rigdon and Phoebe Rigdon, both had to find new homes as the result of this. In other words, the command was to dispose of the land. In other words, sell it or get rid of it in some way so that you could move down to Missouri. Well, that meant that Joseph and Emma had to move, and so did Sidney and Phoebe. Joseph and Emma moved to nearby Hiram, Ohio, it was about 30 miles southeast of Kirtland, to stay with John and Alice, or Elsa, Johnson. And the Rigdons moved to a log home also located in Hiram. Looking further in the Revelation, starting in verse 41, Joseph Smith Jr. is to discern by the Spirit who should stay in Ohio and who should go to Missouri. Newell K. Whitney is to keep his store, but impart what money he can to Zion. That's verses 42 and 43. Newell is also to be an agent to the disciples who are to stay in Ohio. So a lot of important organizational things. And I have to admit, one thing that thrills me is that the Lord cares about this stuff. He wants his church to be a church of order. And I love it when those instructions come from the Lord. In verses 47 and 48, those who are faithful will eventually overcome all the challenges of this life. And in verse 49, the Lord reminds us that righteous people who die before the second coming will be resurrected when the Savior comes to the earth. Let's go on to verse 50. And he that liveth when the Lord shall come and hath kept the faith, blessed is he. Nevertheless, it is appointed to him to die at the age of man. Wherefore, children shall grow up until they become old. Old men shall die, but they shall not sleep in the dust, but they shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. You know, our mother used to love to say that she hopes to be twinkled. Yep. And that's what she's referring to in verse (laughs) 51, being twinkled. President Joseph Fielding Smith, in his book, Church History and Modern Revelation, taught that men on the earth will still be mortal, but a change shall come over them so that they will have power over sickness, disease, and death. Death shall all but be banished from the earth, for men shall live until they are the age of a tree or 100 years old, and then shall die at the age of man. But this death shall come in the twinkling of an eye, and mortality shall give way to immortality suddenly. There shall be no graves, and the righteous shall be caught up to a glorious resurrection. And this quote was found in the Institute Student Manual. Let's go back to the section, verse 53. These things 
are the things that ye must look for. Okay, so pay attention. And speaking after the manner of the Lord, they are now nigh at hand, and in a time to come, even in the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And until that hour there will be foolish virgins among the wise. And at that hour cometh an entire separation of the righteous and the wicked. And in that day will I send mine angels to pluck out the wicked and cast them into unquenchable fire. Okay, so there's that reference to the parable of the ten virgins again. Those are showing up frequently now. Well, and it's interesting that what we're talking about here isn't members of the church and non-members of the church. Correct. Remember that of the virgins, all of them were waiting for the Son of Man to come, the bridegroom to come. All of them were invited. Yeah. So this is an interesting prelude to the coming verses, talking about how the angels will pluck the wicked from among them, separate the righteous and the wicked. But again, we're talking about, we're in the context here of members of the church. Right. And let's remember that phrasing in verse 54, there will be foolish virgins among the wise. Yeah. In verse 55 and 56, Sidney Rigdon is rebuked. Verse 55 tells us, he exalted himself in his heart and received not counsel. That sounds unwise. True. And in 56, his writing is not acceptable unto the Lord, and he shall make another. Now, his writing, he had certainly been working with Joseph Smith with the inspired translation of the Bible. But in this context, the writing that the Lord is referring to Remember that in Doctrine and Covenants 58, verses 50 to 52, the Lord commanded Sidney to write a description of Zion and circulate it among other members to raise funds to purchase lands in Zion. Evidently, that writing was not acceptable. Hmm. Now, the good news is that Sidney did write another draft and accomplished the Lord's purpose in raising funds. That's great. Let's go on in 58. For this is a day of warning and not a day of many words. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in the last days. Behold, I am from above, and my power lieth beneath. I am over all, and in all, and through all, and search all things. And the day cometh that all things shall be subject unto me. Behold, I am Alpha and Omega, even Jesus Christ. Wherefore, let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. For behold, verily I say that many there be who are under this condemnation, who use the name of the Lord and use it in vain, having not authority. Casey Paul Griffiths, in his Doctrine and Covenants Minute that's found at Doctrine and Covenants Central, offers this insight. He says, In these verses, the Lord warns specifically against those who lack authority using his name in vain. In Webster's 1828 dictionary, the word vain meant empty, worthless, having no substance, value, or importance. Certainly, his name has meaning when taken as an identifier of the Lord's true church or when used in any ordinances of the gospel. However, when his name is used in vain by people without authority, by people who take it upon themselves without serious commitment, or by people who use it as a profanity, these people come under the Lord's condemnation. 
Right, and the Lord goes on to clarify the importance of his name in verse 64. Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. And in this there is no condemnation. And ye receive the Spirit through prayer. Wherefore, without this there remaineth condemnation. From the Institute Manual, there's a quote from then-Elder Dallin H. Oaks. This comes from April 1986 General Conference, in which he tells us, quote, This scripture, and he's referring to verses 61 and 62 of section 63, shows that we take the name of the Lord in vain when we use his name without authority. This obviously occurs when the sacred names of God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, are used in what is called profanity in hateful cursings, in angry denunciations, or as marks of punctuation in common discourse. The names of the Father and the Son are used with authority when we reverently teach and testify of them, when we pray and when we perform the sacred ordinances of the priesthood. There are no more sacred or significant words in all of our language than the names of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. When the names of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ are used with reverence and authority, they invoke a power beyond what mortal man can comprehend. It should be obvious to every believer that these mighty names, by which miracles are wrought, by which the world was formed, through which man was created, and by which we can be saved, are holy and must be treated with the utmost reverence. As we read in modern revelation, remember that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit, end quote. Amen to that. You know, even in our general conference not long ago, President Nelson reminded us of the importance of being reverent. You know, when he was announcing temples and everybody got so excited and I don't blame them. He didn't blame them. But we were developing a habit of maybe not having the right reverence for the setting. So I think it's also wonderful to cheer inside in gratitude to God for those great blessings. As we wrap up in verse 66, these things remain to overcome through patience, that such may receive a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, otherwise a greater condemnation. Amen. We talked earlier about the fact that Joseph and Sidney and their families were essentially homeless because of the command to sell the property, Isaac Morley's farm, and that they moved in with John Johnson and his family in Hiram, Ohio. This is an interesting prelude to the events that will be forthcoming, because while living there in the following months, Joseph received 15 different sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and Joseph and Emma's family endured some of the most harrowing events in their lives. So buckle up, in the weeks to come, we'll have more serious challenges, but also some incredible blessings. You know, I'd like to remind all of you, we're about halfway through the year, and yet the church is only about a year and a half old. (laughs) That's a great perspective. There is a lot that's happened in that first year and a half, and there's so much more to come. And we look forward to going over more and more with you as the year unfolds. 
And we'll look forward to going into more revelations with you at our next lesson. We'll look forward to seeing you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. 